Our reading today comes from 1 Samuel 24. And when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of your men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore, to Saul this, swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Will you pray with me? Father God, we do praise you on this here Ascension Sunday. Lord, we praise you as our true King, God. Um, and we thank you even for this story of your mercy and your grace following David and his men, Lord. Um, now may you send your promised one, your Holy Spirit, even to this room, God, and open our hearts and open our minds to what it has to speak to us even now this day, God. For we know without, without your Spirit, these are but... Uh, mere words on a page, and we need you to enliven our hearts, Lord, and make them come alive and hear 
your voice calling through them. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Christian. Some of you will probably remember this. There's a joke that sort of made its way through the little Christian community that I grew up in in rural Mississippi when I was a kid. The joke went like this. Do you know how to make God laugh? Just tell him your plans. <laughs> Just tell him your plans. Well, we, we laugh at that because we, we know we know how often we make plans, and yet it is the Lord, right, who directs our steps. It is He who's really sovereign over our lives, and to be quite honest, when our plans change all of the sudden, when we put so much energy and so much time into them, it's not very funny. <laughs> it's actually pretty frustrating. And it can be, over the course of life, very disillusioning. It actually felt that way a little bit on Thursday night. It's so good to see the Elliots here this morning. So good to see little Amara with us as well. Some of you know that Mark and Lindsay Elliot have uh, for five years been waiting on bringing Amara home. And just to put that in perspective, this church began five years ago. Just kind of gauge a little bit of time. That's a long time. It's a long time to wait for a daughter uh, to come home, and it's pretty special that she's here on her first Sunday, isn't it? Uh, she's here with us. But it was a little scary on Thursday night, and I was, I was buzzing up the interstate to uh, get to the airport for Amara's arrival. She was to be there about 5.45 in the evening. All of my kids were just so excited. Uh, even little Luke, who's about three years of age, didn't know exactly what was going on, but he, he just said, little girl's going to get new family. Little girl's going to get new family. And I was like, you're right. She's going to get a new family. And we've been praying for this for a really long time. And you, you know, you're excited and you're making your way up. It, and of course, it's the worst night of travel in all of Nashville. And it takes us an hour to get to the airport. And we actually pull in at about 545. And I drop off my family at arrivals. And I'm going to go find a parking spot just in case we were to miss the arrival and park the car to actually run into Mark and Susanna Sammons who was there with probably several dozen other folks and and uh, I was like oh I saw him walking out and I was like oh I missed it I'm like I missed it she arrived and Mark was like no it's not like that at all she actually wasn't on the plane she was supposed to be on she's gonna hopefully be here in about five hours or, or maybe by tomorrow morning. And my heart just like broke on the spot. I thought, okay, Lord, we've been waiting five years. <laughs> and, and we're all excited and we've all come to the airport and she's not going to make it while we're here at the airport. And so I'm, I'm wiping away tears on my way to see the Elliots and see everybody who's waiting. And there's Lindsay crying. There's my wife who made it earlier crying. There's everybody crying. And, and I just hug Lindsay and I begin to pray and just say, Lord, I, we don't understand your timing. We don't know why you do what you do, but we trust you. But we trust you. Um, it's hard in those moments to figure out, Lord, what's going on? Why do, why do these things happen? 
And the Elliots are trying to adopt a child. This is really close to your heart. Couldn't we make this easy? <laughs> Couldn't this go smoothly? No. He has purposes and reasons that we know not of. The secret things belong to the Lord, we're told in Deuteronomy 29. And I don't know exactly why Amara didn't come on that plane, but I know that the Lord did, and he was teaching us all something really important in that moment. We all have moments like that, don't we? Or it just doesn't make sense. We have to wait. And we're burdened by having to wait. And our heart breaks in the midst of the waiting. That's King David. First Samuel 16, he was anointed as a little shepherd boy, as king. We are years removed from that moment. Years removed from that moment as we open up 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's been a long time coming, and it's still got a long time to go. We're not at the end of it by any stretch of the imagination. We read in Psalm 142, it's really the only psalm that has this little superscript above it, a psalm of David when he was in the cave. That's what it says. We find David here in a cave. We don't know if it was this cave. David was in a lot of caves. He was in a lot of caves over the course of his life. So we don't know which cave it is, but we, we know that, that he was in a cave when he wrote Psalm 142. And there's just one verse I want to note, verse 5. Because in the midst of that psalm, Psalm 142, David is pleading with the Lord, talking about his enemies, troubles on every front. And then you know what he says in verse 5? He says, but I cry to you, O Lord, for you are my refuge. For you are my refuge. You are my safe place. You are my fortress. You are my stronghold. In the midst of everything else seemingly falling apart, Lord, you are my refuge. When I don't understand why everything is going on the way it's going on around me, Lord, you are my refuge. I can entrust myself to you when I don't understand and when I'm in the midst of heartache. Now, as we look at this passage with that in mind, with, with what does it mean to find God as our refuge? What does it mean to trust him regardless of the circumstances that we're in? I want us to examine this passage in three different ways today. And I want you to see at the first that really what happens in this passage is at one level too good to be true. And it's a test. It's a test for David. And then I want you to see in the second place that what happens in this passage is too true to be good because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And then I want you to see in the final place that the, there is a truth that is always good. And we can trust ourselves to the Lord. Too good to be true, a test. Too true to be good, the anointed and a truth that is always good. That's what we're going to look at as we look at this text together. Let's start with too good to be true. Um, we've looked at David the shepherd boy, the anointed king. We've looked at David the warrior who killed Goliath. We've looked at David the friend who was yoked to Jonathan, but now we consider David the fugitive. David who is on the run for his life. 
It's been that way for several chapters because last week we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 20 and at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is running off from the center of Israel, leaving his best friend Jonathan behind. And as he runs off, he's going to be running for a really long time, much longer than he realizes he's going to be running. He's moving from one place to the next. In fact, here's just a handful of the places he's been. He goes from Nod to Gath to the cave of Adullam, to the wilderness of Ziph, to the wilderness of Moan, to finally here in 1 Samuel 24 to the wilderness of En Gedi. And every single one of those places that David goes, he's running for his life. Saul's catching wind of where he is and David has to go on the run to try to in some way, shape or form, evade the attack of Saul. Now where is En Gedi? Where is he in this text, 1 Samuel 24? Well, He's in the southwestern edge of the Dead Sea. In fact, the word in Gedi actually means spring of goats because it's there a little oasis. It is found for herdsmen to feed their flocks and to water them. It's there where one of the fresh water sources in and around the Dead Sea is found, one of the very few fresh water sources. And it's there where David and his men are hiding a treacherous place Apart from that oasis, a place of rugged cliffs and eroding mountains, it's a place with many caves and many caverns, and it's why David runs there, because it's a wonderful place to hide, and it's also a place that simultaneously can provide for you the water and the sustenance that you need. At this moment, Saul is coming from a fierce battle with the Philistines. We don't know who, but someone, we're told in verse 2, gives Saul a scouting report and he says, we've heard that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And of course, Saul wastes no time. He takes off immediately with 3,000 of his top flight soldiers in pursuit of David. And as he arrives in En Gedi, we're given a very curious note. A note that displays the earthiness of the Bible. We're told that as Saul arrives in En Gedi, nature calls. Nature calls and Saul walks into a cave. The description, very tactfully given to us here in the text, is to relieve himself. Now it's an interesting Hebrew idiom. It simply means to cover one's feet. But it's a way of saying, I'm going to the bathroom. Now, as we see that this is taking place as Paul comes into En Gedi, it's this little throwaway line right after that note that catches our attention. It reads this way. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. <laughs> and we just want to laugh. Now, think about it. What's going on in David's mind in that moment? Here is Saul. The bloodthirsty king of Israel who has been trying to kill him now for years. And now by some strange twist of providence, Saul walks into the very cave that David and his men are hiding in the innermost recesses of. It's dark. Saul can't see a thing. He is in the most vulnerable and compromising position we can imagine someone to be in. If we could put it this way, he's caught with his pants down. That's where he is. Now, it would be nothing for David in this moment to sneak up behind Saul and with one stroke of the sword be done with this whole fugitive thing. 
It was so close that David would have been able to taste it. Even, even more, it would have paved the way for the anointing of David to genuinely come into its fulfillment. He would be the next king of Israel upon the death of Saul, which now lays within the grasp of David's ability. You can hopefully hear David kind of thinking in the back of his mind, here's where the happily ever after begins. Here's what I've been longing for for years. Here's what I've laid my hopes up for for years and, and it's now within my grasp. And, and as those thoughts would have flit through David's mind, he's a mere man, a sinful man at that. We'll have plenty of evidence to that as we go through this series. He would have thought about these things. He would have realized how powerful he would have been in that moment and exercised that power for his own delight and his own advancement. And not to mention the fact that as he would have had those thoughts flitting through his mind, he has 600 men or so whispering in his ear, saying, Here is the day that the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David's men can clearly see what's going on here. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In fact, one of my favorite commentators on this particular passage actually says he can hear in the background of the inner recesses of that cave that old children's chorus. Many of you will know it. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. You know, that's what, the, that's what they're humming in the back of the cave as David is thinking at this particular moment about how much power he holds to lay low Saul. It's clear, isn't it? I mean, God's in this. I mean, if, if God wrote it in the clouds, it wouldn't be any clearer. There's no need to even stop and pray about it. There's no need to get anybody's advice about it. It is clear that this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the point of of what providence is leading you to, David, this is the day where you take your sword in hand and you avenge yourself. And you take the throne that is rightfully yours. You've already been anointed for the throne. We know that that is the future. It's the kind of thing we do, isn't it? When it seems like the puzzle pieces of providence are coming together in a certain way, and we're in a bit of a difficult place, and we're wondering what it is that we're going to do, and what do we begin to do? We begin to look for a sign. We begin to say, Lord, show me something. Write it in the clouds. And then you know what happens? An opportunity presents itself that's not in the clouds, and it doesn't jump off of the page of Scripture. And we say to ourselves, this is a God thing. He's doing this. It's clear that this is what he would want me to do. And, of course, at one level, it is a God thing. He's in absolute sovereign control. Nothing happens apart from his sovereign plan. He is complete with regards to his control. But that's not what we mean when we say that. What we mean to say is that this is God's will for me. This is what he wants me to do. It's handed to me on a silver platter. But here's what's really interesting. David's men... See this moment with Saul as an opportunity, but David sees this moment with Saul as a temptation and a test. 
We said weeks ago in 1 Samuel chapter 16 at the anointing of David that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We said that that verse could in some ways overshadow the entirety of what's happening in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Don't we see the same reality here in this text? There's a way that man looks at the world, but it actually leads to death. And there's a way of faith that looks into the heart of an issue that touches the reality of God and his truth and his purposes, and its way is hidden from the world. And David, as he looks at this particular moment, he doesn't see an opportunity. He sees a temptation. And what was the temptation? Well, let me, let me put it this way. It was to take a shortcut. Now, as I think about it in that way, I can't help but be reminded of John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, who many of you have read, that wonderful part in the story called Bypath Meadow where a Christian with hopeful are on this particularly rugged path that has veered away from the river which they use to gather their, their drinking fluids and to strengthen themselves for this journey. Their feet are sore and they come to a place where a fence has sort of fallen down and there's clearly a path that goes across the field that leads apparently to the other side where it will then link up again to the narrow way. And they can tell that many a traveler have taken this pathway and the grass would be much softer than the rocks in which they have walked on. And so Christian and hopeful jump over the little stile of the fence and they begin to make their way across Bypath Meadow. And you know who they find on their way to Bypath Meadow? They find Mr. Vain Confidence. Mr. Vain Confidence who tells them, oh yes, this is indeed the path to the celestial city. That's why I'm taking it. It's just a bit of a shortcut. And then darkness falls. And when darkness falls, Mr. Vain Confidence takes a step that causes him to fall into a trap to his demise. And Christian and hopeful are warned. And they begin to recognize that though they had believed that this bypath meadow would get them to the shortcut on the way to the celestial city, it was indeed a dead end. It was a way of their own making. It was not God's way. I was talking to a friend this week and I was asking how he was doing and he said something that really kind of concerned me. We're going to pick it up in a couple of weeks when we talk again. He said, I just sort of feel like God is fast-forwarding maturity and growth for me right now. Things are moving quickly. I've gained this new insight. I've gained this new, uh, new breakthrough. And I've gained this new key to what it means to live a kind of perfectly balanced existence. I kind of thought, in, in my past, just in terms of experience, each time I think I found a key a shortcut, a breakthrough to get to a higher spiritual plane, it winds up breaking my heart somewhere along the way. It winds up being a fool's errand. It winds up being a bypath meadow. For a moment, it softens the journey for my feet, but it leads me down into a pit when I'm not ready and I could hardly expect it. Do you see what David is spotting is we often are falling into the temptation to try to do the Lord's will in our own way. To do it in our own time. To in a sense fast forward to providence. And whenever we do that, it's bound for destruction. And David sees it. This is not an opportunity. This is a test. This is a temptation. Will I stay the course in trusting the Lord in faith that he will put me on the throne in his time? Or will I grasp for it? when it is put within my own strength. 
rather than trust him. David's men see Saul as a sitting duck, walking into a cave unguarded, but David sees Saul here as a test. He thinks to himself, it's almost too good to be true. And it is. Now, why is it too good to be true? Well, that leads us to our second point. It's too good to be true because it's too true to be good. What do I mean? It's too true to be good. Well, it's all centering around this language of the anointed. The anointed, which is all through this passage of 1 Samuel 24. I want to put yourself in the shoes of David here for a minute. Can you imagine the men there waiting in the inner recesses of the cave as they see David creeping forward on all fours towards Saul, who has likely thrown his robe off to the side as he relieves himself? And his men anticipating what it is that David is going to do. He's carrying his sword after all. And we're told that David cuts just a piece of the robe off of Saul. And then he makes his way back to the men. And can you imagine how the men were like, what are you doing? This this was not the plan. You've got a piece of fabric in your hand. that's That's not what this mission is about. This mission is about cutting Saul down to size. This is about eradicating your enemy. That's the way they describe him here in this passage. And we're told that the men would not easily come off of this particular position. Verse 7 actually says that David tried to persuade these men with words and he did not permit them to attack Saul. Apparently some of them were scheming, well, if you're not going to do it, then then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Some of us are going to do it. Hey, David, we're in this with you. We've left our families. We've made all kinds of sacrifices too. And David actually has to argue down and and completely not permit them to make any movement towards Saul. In fact, the language is extremely strong in the text. In fact, many scholars believe it's too strong in the text. That language of persuade is very kind. It's a very kind translation of words that literally mean torn apart. It means that David tore apart his men, meaning he threatened them. If you do this, here's what I will do to you as your commander. This is a seriously intense moment, and there's an irony in it. The men want to tear Saul apart, and David tears the men apart verbally by threatening them to remain seated, to be quiet. This is not the Lord's will. Why is it not the Lord's will? Where David says it very clearly. Look at verse 6 with me. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Now that needs to settle on us for just a second. The truth of Saul's anointing, the reality, he is the king of Israel. Regardless of whether David has been anointed to be the king of Israel, Saul is. He occupies the position and the status of king in Israel. And because of that, David says, my hand, all of our hands, must be stayed. We must cease from any violence and any threats towards the Lord's anointed. Now, what is David doing here? Well, let me tell you what David is doing here. David is showing respect for the office 
of kingship that Saul possesses as the Lord's anointed. That's what David is doing here. I want you to see the respect of David here. It really is quite remarkable as we look at David's character. After Saul exits the cave and departs, presumably at some distance, David came out and yelled to him, and notice what he says. Notice the words that he says. He says, my Lord, the king. My Lord, the king. There's really two things he's saying there. He's saying, you are the king. You occupy a position of authority, and you are the Lord's anointed, and that deserves, in and of itself, honor. That deserves respect, but in addition, you are my Lord. I personally am submitted to you. I personally am submitted to you. And listen, it's not just in words. In the very next sentence, we read this. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid him homage. Now, let's remember here, the Old Testament is not a cartoon. We have a tendency to think of these characters as larger than life. They have a little animation about them. David is a real man. Saul has been trying to kill him for years. For years. David would like, as a man, and a man who struggles with his own flesh, to tell the king a thing or two, at the very least. He had the ability to kill him. He resisted that. But at least he'll give him a piece of his mind. No. Not even that either. Instead, he restrains himself. He refrains from showing any dishonor, but instead is a man who acts in complete respect to the position that Saul occupies as the Lord's anointed. He even does it with a man who will not return the favor of the basic dignity of life with regards to David himself. Now, let me ask you a question. I think the text is, is saying this very loudly to us and it's asking this penetrating question for us. Do we respect the men and the women whom the Lord has put in authority over us? Do we respect them? Do we show them the honor that is due not because of who they are, because of the position that they occupy. Let me remind you of Romans 13.1. This is the Apostle Paul's language. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority. That's a universal negative. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I'll let that settle on you. You have never witnessed an authority that has not been instituted by God. You, you've never witnessed it. Not in human history, not today. But let's, let's answer the objection. But we have bad rulers. We have, we have fools for, for rulers. It's a political circus out there. Surely, surely, Nate, let's not go too far. Surely Romans 13 doesn't apply to X. Or Y, or Z, or A, B, C, D, E, F. Let me ask you a question. Um, do they get worse than Saul? Yeah, maybe. Is Saul pretty bad? 
Biblically speaking, is Saul pretty bad? Yes. Saul is, is really bad, actually. Uh, David could, could have an open, shut case with regards to arguing against the moral character and the leadership of Saul. And what does he do in this passage? He shows him respect. He shows him honor. He personally submits to him. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think he, I think he knows that because he knows this truth, even though it wasn't written at the time. Romans 13, 2, the very next verse of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's really strong language. That's why I'm saying let this settle on you because do you, like me, in your heart have some internal resistance to those words? <laughs> I, I, I do. I've had to sort of warm my heart by these words from the Apostle Paul and, and realize, ooh. Okay, this is what the Lord is calling us to. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Well, then what should we do when we have a bad ruler? <laughs> 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life dignified in every way. You know, this is probably why David wrote so many psalms. Think of how often he had to deal with terrible leadership. And yet what he does is he writes prayers to the Lord. He pleads to the Lord. He brings his case to the Lord. He submits it to the Lord. But he is committed to doing the Lord's work, as one commentator put it, in the Lord's way. In the Lord's way. You, you won't ever hear the Bible encourage us to complain. You, you just won't. You won't ever hear the Bible tell us to, to attack those who are in lawful authority over us. It will tell us to pray for them. It will tell us to engage. It will tell us to be active and loving and careful and kind. Isn't it? Fascinating, I know this is so true to me. When I believe that I'm right, it doesn't really matter if I'm gentle. It doesn't really matter if I care. It doesn't really matter if I, if I love. The men on Thursday morning have been studying the fruit of the Spirit, and I've been slayed by them week after week. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. <laughs> oh, no. No, not patience. Like Anything but patience. I don't want to... I don't want to wait any longer. Do you think David wanted to wait longer? I think he was in there, I'd like to run around a lot longer in these caves and in Getty. No. This is important for us. It's important for us right now. That's why I'm camping out on it. Do you sense the importance of this? The Lord providentially has us in this passage at this moment in our civil and political history as a nation. Let's hear this, friends. Let's hear what the Lord is saying. It's too good to be true because there's a truth that, that keeps it from being good. 
the taking of Saul's life, but there is a truth that is always good. That's really where this text leads us. And as we draw to a conclusion, I just want to note of a friend of mine this week who just, the Lord seemed to just bring in so many things this week, just confirming the study of this passage and, and really helpful to me um, in, in thinking through these things. But it was a friend who called me and he was like, there was a, had been a situation where he had been done wrong. He had genuinely been done wrong. I remember it from a couple of years ago. And he called me of all weeks. He called me this week. And he said to me, listen, the tables have turned and I have a, a chance to, in a sense... <laughs> do this person in and I need you to pray for me. There is nothing that I want to do more than to stick it to them. And I know it's not the Lord's way. And only because I had been in 1 Samuel 24, I said, vengeance is the Lord's. Justice is the Lord's. It's not for you and me. It is his. And that's David's prayer. That's David's prayer in this passage. I want you to see it. Verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. Verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. This is David's position as he goes towards Saul in this moment across a valley speaking to him. He is calling down the Lord of heaven and earth who rules and reigns, who does all things right to in his time and in his way avenge, to cause justice to be brought about, but not to grasp for it, to wait on it, to wait on it to entrust himself to the Lord. He trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord to do what is right in the Lord's time. Now it may seem, as you hear that, well, David, I mean, he's sort of being a doormat here. You know, he's sort of letting Saul kind of kick off the mud of his boots on him all day long. He's just, he's a big old pacifist is what he is. Some scholars actually argue that David is, in some ways, asserting a kind of pacifist mentality with regards to injustice. But let me tell you, friends, I think that's a very unfair reading of this text. Because I want to ask you, what's harder? Pulling out the sword and slaying Saul or trusting the sword to the Lord in his time? You tell me which is harder. You tell me which takes more active faith. The former or the latter. And those of you who've been in those situations before, you know exactly what note I'm singing. And you know it's so much more difficult to bring those fists down, to close that mouth, than to act in vengeance and to entrust that the Lord, in the end, He will make all things right. This is where David takes us. And this is what David, in a very real sense, is showing us. That he wants to let God's work happen in God's way, in God's time. And he's not willing to fast forward providence. 
Now, at the end of this, verses 16 to 22, it sure looks like Saul has a change of heart. We won't spend a lot of time on this because you're going to see it wasn't a change of heart. But in 16 to 22, a rhetorical apology is granted uh, or expressed by Saul towards David. And it would seem that maybe Saul has had a change of heart. Well, I only commend to you 1 Samuel 25. The very next chapter, you will find that Saul goes back to his old ways almost immediately. That this is temporary remorse, but it is not repentance. It is not a change of life. It is not a change of behavior. It is, I was caught. Shucks. I should probably grovel for a bit and then go back with my forces and plot again. That's essentially what happens in the unfolding of 1 Samuel. And this is why David is is actually quite smart. If you look at just the last verse, verse 22, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. (laughs) You can imagine where David would go, yeah, Saul, let's go home together. (laughs) And... uh, You'll throw a spear at me as soon as we get to the palace. You know, he, he knows. He does not entrust himself to Saul in the midst of this. He's wise. And he says, Saul going home. I'm going to the stronghold. I'm going to the fortress. I'm going to the refuge. Because I know I'll need to be there. And it's where we have to always go. When we're in the midst of attack. We have to run to the stronghold. You know, this is Ascension Sunday. It's essentially the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him getting the crown. It's him coming into what has been promised to him. Him receiving the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven and on earth, and every tongue would confess that, what, he is Lord. That's what this Sunday is all about. It's about the the victory, the full culmination of the resurrection, Jesus ascending into his power. Now, what's fascinating is we're in a text where David's going to have to wait longer. But it reminds us of when Jesus had to wait. And very interestingly, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has to learn a very similar test. Guess where? In a wilderness. Right after he is baptized where the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him, which is essentially the anointing of Jesus. It's the first Samuel 16 for David. It's the anointing that he will be king. And guess what we're told? We're told that he goes straight from his anointing into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted. He's tested for 40 days. And one of the tests is the evil one taking him to a high mountain and showing him the kingdoms of the world and saying, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Do do you see what's happening? It's a shortcut. You don't have to go this way, Jesus. You know that your Father's already promised to you the crown that you will rule and reign on high. Now all you got to do is just bow down and worship me. And if you do that, then I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. And it would have been the way that Jesus would have forfeited his kingdom by committing the sin of idolatry. And what it shows you is that the Lord Jesus Christ here in this passage, as we will see David, he won't always do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. 
This is a really great passage. But there is one who always did the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Who after his anointing had to suffer. Who had to go to the mountain of Calvary. Who had to receive the strokes of justice. Who had to receive the attacks from all of those who were around him, even from all of the political leaders, and yet he was the one who determined, even when he prayed great drops of blood, and sweat them in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he wrestled on the brink of would he continue to drink this cup? Would he drink it all the way to the dregs? And he said, yes, he would. I will entrust myself to my Father. And he did. And in so doing, you know what he actually has done? He's welcomed us into a kingship. Here's what's remarkable. At the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, you know what we're promised? We're promised a crown. As sons and daughters of the king, we are those who are prince and princesses of the one who will give us all of the riches of the heavenly places. They're even right now at our disposal. And he has won for us a crown, a victor. But right now, how many times are we wandering in a wilderness being tested to grasp rather than wait? But if we look to the one who waited instead of grasp but emptied himself and became nothing, pouring himself out on the cross, looking to the day when he would receive the name that is above every name, he watched in faith to the end. And he put one foot in front of the other and he didn't grasp for power in the wrong way. Friends, this is the challenge that's been given to us. This is the truth of this particular text and it's pressing into our souls today to conform us into the image of that Jesus who was faithful to the end. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we submit ourselves to you. We entrust ourselves to you. The one who will see us through no matter what shape our wilderness wanderings take. No matter what threatenings our lives experience. We know that in the end you will make all things right. You will avenge your people. You will bring justice. And it gives us confidence today to stay the course. To wait. To not jump the gun. To not get ahead of ourselves. To not act with vain confidence and foolish pride, but instead humble ourselves under your sovereign hand, trusting that you do all things right. Lord, right now in this room, there are many different stories along those lines. I pray, Lord, you, by the power of your Spirit, would apply it graciously in just the measure needed. And that you show us, even through the conclusion of this service, who Jesus is. And why we should trust Him with our very lives. We ask it in His name. Amen.